0: this morning is from Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 36, and it's on page 994. The heading is, The Day and Hour Unknown. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As he preaches, that as we hear, we will be blessed and challenged to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. May I speak in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The words that day, which occur in the opening sentence of today's Gospel. Chime in with a recurring theme of both Old and New Testaments. As they make their way through history, both the Jewish nation and the early church always have one eye on the future. And the language they use to talk about that future often takes the form of that day. They believe that history will not simply run on and on forever. But will not go round in endless cycles, but rather history will eventually, and in God's chosen time, come to an end point. And once that end point is reached, then it will involve the cessation of time. It will mean the climax of history, and it will be coincident with the consummation of creation. That day will mark a real watershed in God's purposes for humanity, for the earth, and indeed for the entire universe. Nothing will be the same after that day because God will bring about a universal transformation of all things and take creation into a completely different mode of existence. What the Bible says about that day could be summarized by three words. It is a day of revelation. It is a day of reckoning. And it is a day of renewal. That day will be a day of revelation because it will make clear for all to see what God has been seeking to accomplish through the work of creation. It will show that God's purposes are just and good and true. That all God intended and God brought to completion is shot through with love. Such a feature of that day is, I believe, essential. Indeed, I would want to say that without the promise of that day in the future, we cannot make sense of the gospel and its proclamation of God's love to use technical terms evangelism needs eschatology what we say God has done and what God is doing lacks credibility unless we are able to say what God will do let me explain what I mean A few weeks ago, I was listening to the programme Last Word on Radio 4, which contains the obituaries of those who have recently died, and among them on this particular afternoon was the obituary of Gay Byrne, the famous Irish broadcaster, and hearing about the amazing popularity of his radio show over more than 20 years. On that show, he interviewed many famous people, and he never shied away from probing them for their political or religious views. As an example, they played a short extract from an interview Byrne did with Stephen Fry. Stephen, suppose you make it to the pearly gates and then have the chance to talk to God face to face, what would you want to say? The question had an almost playful aspect to it, but the answer Came In a very different tone I would want to say Said Stephen Fry Why God Did you make a world In which children can have bone cancer How could you be Such a capricious And stupid God Fry's voice Was full of aggression And contempt And it hit me Like a thump in the stomach at the same time I know that there are millions who down the millennia of human history have similar questions, who have an insistent protest against the proclamation that God knows about us, cares about us and loves us. And when you've seen a beloved child or family member racked by cancer or snatched away by some tragic accident, it is easy to find that there are very thick scales on your eyes when it comes to seeing the love of God. Or to change the metaphor, I remember a man raging at me just after his wife had died of cancer. If there's a God up there, he must have cotton wool in his ears. So many problems like this remain unresolved as we make our way through life and time. The question of the psalmist Where is now thy God? Or the question of the crucified Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hang in the air of human history, unanswered. And we must believe that on that day, God will show how all this suffering and loss and bewilderment in human history can make sense. Perhaps you know the parable of the master carpet maker. The master sits in front of a frame and on the other side, all his apprentices are sat with the wool for weaving the carpet. The master calls out his instructions and they weave the wool as he directs. As it progresses, it looks to the workers on their side that no real pattern is emerging. Instead, just clashes of colour and lots of loose ends. And the apprentices might well doubt that the master knows what he's doing. But at the end of the day, the master calls the workers around to his side so they can see the carpet on the frame. And then, then they see how it has all come together in a magnificent blend of colour and beauty. That day will be the time when God allows us to see God's perspective on creation, and when we will learn how so much that seemed unresolved, and even a denial of God's love, has been part of something Very worthwhile. That day will be a day of revelation. Secondly, that day will be a day of reckoning. Again, this is essential when we consider how many injustices have been perpetrated through human history and never righted. How many human beings have been trampled and crushed and wiped out in the prime of life because of the grandiose but deeply mistaken ambition of evil dictators. Six million Jews under Hitler. How many million under Pol Pot? How many in the atrocities committed in Rwanda, Bosnia, Croatia, Iraq, Burma, and so on and so on and so on? Yet we know that so many who died in those situations were the innocent victims of the follies and fantasies of those who wielded power. And they have not had recourse to justice nor any recompense for their suffering. And to that, we can add all the senseless destruction of other forms of life in our creation of which we have become so conscious in recent years. If the story of human history is under the oversight of God, then we seem to be back to Stephen Fry's capricious and stupid God. A God who cannot possibly care or be described as loving in the face of so much suffering, oppression, and injustice. Of course we want to say that God has sympathy with the victims of such tragedy. Of course we want to say that God has expressed solidarity with the lives of such victims through the life, experience, and death of Jesus. But that does not address the fundamental problem. These people were swept away by a tide of evil in human history, and those who rode the crest of that wave seem to have got away with it. Hence, that haunting question of Abraham in the book of Genesis will not the judge of all the earth do right a question that hangs in the air until that day which will be a day of reckoning a day of judgment a day when God's righteousness comes into play and sets to right those things that were wrong. A day when there will be pain and punishment. A day when those who failed and sinned and perpetrated evil will be brought to face the consequences of their actions and hopefully will respond in deep repentance, brokenheartedness, and a desire for forgiveness. Jürgen Maltzmann, a great German theologian in his book The Coming of God says that judgment in the New Testament is a source of endlessly consoling joy not dread, but joy why is that? because he says the judge is none other than Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation there's that amazing vision, isn't there? As you look up to the throne of God, what do you see upon it? The Lamb. The Lamb upon the throne. Christ crucified. Christ carrying the wounds of crucifixion. And I'm going to come on in a moment to say that that means that the judgment of God has in one sense already been dealt with in the course of human history. But for now it means that he who looks upon the sinner he who looks upon those who have perpetrated evil will do so not just with with justice but also with mercy. In the chapter after today's gospel, Matthew 25 there is the famous parable of the sheep and goats where humanity is brought before the throne of God for judgment. And those who are righteous are taken into eternal life and those who are wicked are sent to eternal punishment and from that the church grew up the whole doctrine of eternal hell and yet if we look at the Greek Ionios Colossus Ionios that which is of eternity that which is is appropriate for God to do and Colossus The Greek word for pruning. Have you pruned your roses this month? And if you have, why did you do it? To bring new growth. To bring new growth. So the hint in just that parable, which seems to separate everything off into a final division, is that it will not be the end. The punishment, the condemnation, is not retributive. That is, it's not just about inflicting pain and punishment and almost saying, I told you so. But it is reformative. It is about judgment exercised in order to bring about change and renewal in those who receive it. For new growth to come, and hopefully restoration. And so that day will indeed be a day of reckoning, a day of of God's judgment. But finally, it will be a day of renewal. As I said a moment ago, the righteousness of God, right in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the righteousness of God is about God entering situations that are unjust, that are balanced towards evil, and putting them to rights. God correcting that which is broken and wounded and out of kilter god putting it right so that it reflects the justice and righteousness of god and what the new testament tells us is that that judgment that putting to rights has already taken place in the cross of christ there as jesus was nailed to the beams of the cross came against him all the sin all the ugliness all the evil of human creation All that could reject, all that could destroy the love of God came against the person of Jesus in the cross and it did not defeat him. We have seen through the resurrection that the love that pulsated in the heart of Jesus on the cross is a love that cannot be conquered, cannot be broken, cannot be defeated by all the evil and sin of creation. And that therefore... He has absorbed into himself all that evil and sin, and he has overcome it and brought himself to new life. There we have seen that love is stronger than hate. Good is stronger than evil. And so the judgment has already taken place, and there is the offer of forgiveness. There is the offer of new beginnings. So this means that though that day lies in the future, there had been this day in history, this day of crucifixion, this day when the judgment was decided in favor of us and in favor of mercy. So as a result of that, we live in between times. We live between the time this day on the cross, when we see the love of God triumphant over the sin and evil of the world. And that day, when we will see that love demonstrated universally in a way that transforms and fills and holds together everything. We don't see that yet. All we see is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And we hope for that transformation in the future. So the great theologian Karl Barth once said, we live as Christians between the already, the not yet. But in between, there's the even now. Already, not yet, even now. Even now, we can begin to see glimpses of that future day when the righteousness of God impinges upon the brokenness And the twistedness of human history and begins to show insights and moments of that future beauty and glory that will belong to the new creation. We can look for that in our own lives. And so, picking up the theme of watchfulness this morning, that is the challenge. How awake are you? How alert am I to seeing the signs of God's presence, of God's purpose? of God's healing coming into our own lives, into the life of the church and into the life of the world. Are we responsive to it? Do we see it and do we hope for it in that day? That's the challenge. And Alec Vidler compared it to an orchestra. He said, creation, what we're living through now, creation is like an orchestra warming up before a great symphony is performed. And as they warm up and as they try out different pieces, so you hear snatches of the future symphony that is about to be played. But we don't hear it in completion. We don't hear it in continuity. Just bits and pieces here as they get ready. And then the conductor calls the orchestra to rest. And after that, he releases them into playing the full glory of the symphony. And Vidler says, so with God and creation. In it, we catch those snatches of the future melody of the new creation. But only when there comes death and judgment, the dawning of that day, will we move into the release of the entire symphony of God's love and glory and beauty in the new heaven and the new earth promised to us in Revelation 21. In the meantime, we live in the even now, looking back to what has already been made clear to us in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and the future, that day, when God will bring his purposes to completion in Revelation in reckoning and in renewal. Meanwhile, keep awake and look for the signs of what he's
0: doing even now.